I don't know if you realize it, but it's estimated that there are 20,000 different species of butterflies in the world today. It's not 20 or 200 or 2,000, but 20,000 different species. To go along together with 6,000 different species of amphibians, 10,000 different kinds of birds that fly in the air, 30,000 different kinds of fish that swim in the sea. There are 5,000 species of mammals, 8,000 species of reptiles, and unfortunately, 950,000 species of insects out there. Go ahead, look out the window. When you look out the window, doesn't it make you wonder what are the new heavens and the new earth going to be like? When Jesus Christ returns and makes all things new, what is it going to be like? If this world, warped as it is under sin and misery, is nevertheless so brilliantly diverse in its biology, when Jesus returns, I mean, is he going to create entirely new species? And did you realize that most mainstream biologists would say that of all the species that have ever walked the face of the earth, 99.9% of all species are extinct. So when Jesus comes to renew all things, does that mean renewing all things? (laughs) Our minds immediately go to Jurassic Park with... (laughs) All the awesome majesty of those creatures. Do you remember the very first time, did you go to the movie theater and see the first run? How they purposely tried to make the dinosaurs with lots of different colors. All of their majesty, but none of their violence. Is that what's in store for us? Will we ride on the backs of brontosauruses with our mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers whom we so badly miss today? Will we, with our children, fly on the wings of pink pterodactyls? (laughs) I don't know, but what I do know is the new heavens and the new earth means that we get this world back as it was meant to be. And our bodies, we get those back. And our loved ones, we get them back. It seems to me that God perfectly did it um, here in Boise, the 40 days of Easter that we commemorate the resurrection of Jesus from Easter Sunday to his ascension. Those 40 days just so happened to coincide with the 40 prettiest days in the city of Boise. If we lived on the equator, it wouldn't be like that. If we lived up in the Antarctic, it wouldn't be like that. It just seems to me that we have the perfect opportunity over the next 40 days to utilize God-given imaginations, what, what is the return of Christ going to be like? Now, that's uh, part of our passage this morning in 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter 4, 1. Therefore, he says, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin as a result. They do not live for 
They do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. That's a strange passage, and there's several verses in, in 1 Peter 4 we'll cover today, which don't make a lot of sense when you initially read it. It says, he who suffers in the body is done with sin. What does that mean? Because there's nothing in the Bible that says suffering automatically makes you a better person. There's nothing in the Bible that says suffering makes you into a more compassionate or a stronger person. In fact, we've seen plenty of examples of people who go through the crucible and don't come out with the dross being refined and purified, but come out harder and more bitter and more cynical as a result of their suffering. So what is Peter saying? It's done with sin. Well, I think as as a general rule, we would all agree that when you suffer, it causes you to reevaluate everything about your life. Every time we have a brush with death in this life, it causes us to recalibrate things. I mean, if the doctor says that um, you have six months to live. If you suffer a near-fatal heart attack, if your child is involved in a car accident, nearly every brush with death makes us recalibrate and reevaluate. The the Christians here, they're coming up against a brush with death in the form of persecution. It's making them reassess their lives where they say, I am done with sin. I'm done with it. Every time I align myself with sin, I'm basically joining with the enemy that's presently persecuting me. I'm done with that. No more. Verse 3. For you have already spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. That is, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join with them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you, but, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's an interesting passage, because it assumes most of these Christians that are listening to Peter had already spent a lot of their lives in orgies, and drunkenness, and debauchery. Probably because... Most of these uh, people were adult converts. They had left the, the typical way of life of the ordinary Roman Empire. The sins that are mentioned here, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies. It sounds like a college fraternity house. But this, these were the quintessential sins of uh, the pagans of their day. And Peter says, now you're no longer like that. Now you are no longer vomiting in the toilet at 2 o'clock in the morning or waking up in bed with a strange person lying beside you. No, you've said, I'm done with that. Have you said, I'm done with that? Amen, yeah. Now they're no longer doing that. And notice the response of their previous friends. The friends are upset. They experience they're, they're lashing back. It says they heap abuse on you. They publicly shame you in order to try and humiliate you because you don't participate in those old, older ways of life. Verse 6. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, which probably refers to Christians who died and believed 
so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live, these Christians are living right now according to God in regard to the spirit. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and be of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Michael Hanby is a professor of religion at Catholic University of uh, of America in D.C. Dr. Hanby recently gave a very powerful lecture on a cultural critique of America It was in a lecture he was giving in Philadelphia on the topic of hope, but the part of this lecture that stood out most to me was his assessment of our our society right now. And here, the quote I'm going to give you is rather lengthy, so you're going to have to stick with me, but here's what he said. It should be obvious to anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear that we are living through some sort of social revolution. The signs of this revolution are everywhere. For example, electronic devices have radically reshaped the way that we speak and think. And there's plenty of evidence to suggest that it's even reshaped, rewired our neurophysiology. It's certainly profoundly reshaped the personal and public lives that we lead, which are now mostly in the virtual space of social media. Second, Judging from the tragic news of recent months, random senseless violence seems to be on the increase. And judging from just the news last week, can you believe walking into a park and detonating a bomb in the middle of mothers and children celebrating Easter? Random senseless violence seems to be on the increase. Furthermore, there is social unrest on college campuses and in our streets, a further sign of the, deeper, the deep anger, despair, and meaninglessness beneath the surface of our culture. And then thirdly, we see the revolutionary upheaval in those areas of life that cut closest to who we are as human beings. What previous generations have taken for granted, that man, woman, mother, and father name natural realities as well as social roles, that children should be born naturally from their union, that the marriage of man and woman is the foundation of human society and the optimal design for society's flourishing, well, all of this is now increasingly regarded either as obsolete or even hopelessly bigoted. Our society is rapidly accommodating itself to these changes, this reinventing of the family in inventing new rights and revising our, under, our traditional understandings of justice, refashioning our children's education, refashioning even language itself, policing the bounds of acceptable thought and speech. Here's the money quote. 
The America that many of us have taken for granted seems no longer to exist, or at the very least seems to be rapidly disappearing. It is not difficult to foresee on the horizon the tragic irony that has accompanied most of the social revolutions in human history, which promise a new springtime of human freedom and which conclude in a dark winter of absolutism. There's a lot of big words there. <laughs> I know probably for the younger ones among us, you're, you're, gonna, you're looking at me thinking, what did he just say? <laughs> but others, you hear that quote and you know exactly what I'm speaking of. There is some sort of social revolution that's going on. I mean, many of us are deeply pessimistic about, certainly about America's future. Some of us even pessimistic about Western society's future in in general. Maybe you've heard the expression before that we're a society that is actively committing suicide right now. And whether you agree or disagree, whether you're optimistic or pessimistic, here's what I want you to recognize. Peter's society was every bit as bleak. It was every bit as debased and and, uh, declining and decadent and degenerate as ours is, and probably more so. I mean, didn't you read verses 1 through 6 with me? It doesn't sound very pretty, does it? But yet Peter isn't, He's not troubled. He's, he's not worried. He, he's not you know, chicken little calling down that the sky is falling. And he's very level-headed and clear thinking. What he does is he describes to us two different societies. One that he labels as pagans and Gentiles. And one that he labels Christians. One that he labels people who are dominated by evil desires by greed, lust, drunkenness, and idolatry. He says that there will be a judgment to come for them. And another society he labels as people who have died to that way of life and have been raised to a brand new one. The resurrected spirit of Jesus Christ is now in them. And so they desire not to satisfy the the old ways and not to return there. He speaks of the characteristics of this new society, the habits and values of this new society in verses 7 through 11. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. So take your bulletin and look with me at verse 7. Verse 7, do you see it there? The end of all things is near. That's crazy talk, isn't it? Only crazy people say that. Only crazy people standing on the street corner wearing a sandwich board that reads, the end is here. Only loony prophet figures standing outside say, the end, is, the end is near. But do you notice the very next words he says, after the end is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind. The end is near. Not the end is near and we're selling all we have and we're living on the rooftops We're purchasing billboards which predict the return of Jesus. No, the end is near. Therefore, we are clear-thinking, community-forming people of fervent love for one another 
that extend hospitality and that forgive one another of their sins. What's so ironic is we live in a world which says, if you live like the end is near, you're crazy. And we have a Bible which says, only if you see that the end is near, do you you get sane. Only if you see that the end is near, do you recover your sanity and become a clear-thinking, a prayer-transforming new society in Christ. Christians... um, have a completely different approach when it comes to our view of history. It's the crazy people who think that history is cyclical and this world is just going to keep going on and on and on and there's never going to be any terminus and so there will never be a returning judge and so go ahead and use sex and alcohol abuse without any hesitation. The Christian view is entirely different. We have a linear view of history which means that we know that the last act in the play could come any time. Very soon. The curtain can come crashing down very soon when the irresistible light of God's glory finally shines into this world, exposing the darkness and making all things new. Now, I'm not going to, I've long given up the practice of trying to predict when it is that Jesus is going to return. And don't believe anybody if they tell you they have figured that out. But if you believe The end is near insofar as Jesus could come back at any moment. Here are the things that will characterize your life. Verse 8. You will love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. What that means is you will begin forgiving other people. You will forgive people long before they even recognize that they did something to you. You will forgive people way before they ever even offer you an an apology. Because because you and I don't apologize to God for all of our sins, and yet he's so lavish in his forgiveness to us. We've used this definition of forgiveness before. We said forgiveness is canceling a debt. You cancel an existing debt by absorbing the loss yourself. So if you borrow my car and you return it back to me with a broken right front headlight, either I can pay to have those repairs made, or you can pay to have those, but somebody's going to pay. Somebody's going to absorb the loss, and forgiveness says, I'm going to do that. When it says that love covers a multitude of sins, it means I I am forgiving you of all kinds of things, and all kinds of... (laughs) Habits that you have that get on my nerves long before you even recognize that they are there. That's the first thing he says. Second thing he says is verse 9. You are to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. If you were here back in January at our annual congregational meeting, we tried to set forward several ministry initiatives that we wanted to pursue this year. One of them was that we would eat together as a family Another of them was that we would talk together as a family. I would do a better job here at the communion table of letting you know of family-related communication. Um, And then one of them was that we would serve together as a family. What strikes me is that verses 9, 10, and 11, I never even intended it to be this way, but all three of those can be found there. Eat together as a family. Show each other hospitality well, that's what we're going to try and do 
here in another, if I go quickly in the sermon, in another 30 minutes is go downstairs and open up our house to eat together, showing hospitality without grumbling. Then verse 10, we're going to serve together. Each of you, it says, should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. That is, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. One of the ways, one of the best ways that we can serve one another is by having meaningful conversations with one another. It's the easiest thing in the world for a conversation to remain entirely superficial and entirely self-concealing. It's easy to have conversations that never get to anything that actually matters. Those are empty conversations. We have conversations like that all the time. Superficial, never getting below the surface to real matters of the heart. That's not serving each other. It's also to have brut- easy to have brutally honest conversations where you're just venting and, and saying whatever is on your heart. And yet there are, those aren't helpful conversations. It never produces you know, the kinds of words to, sit, to speak to one another as if you're speaking the words of God. It means to have conversations that are nourishing, constructive, timely, and grace-giving. Not empty and not unhelpful, but nourishing, constructive, timely, and grace-giving. Those are the kinds of conversations we're trying to foster in our community groups at the church and uh, um, in in the one-on-one relationships that we have. That's one way we serve each other. The second way we serve each other, he says, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. If you were in adult Sunday school earlier today, you you already heard about this. But what I tried, what I'd love for us to do is family service, sign up, 2016. What this basically entails is we would like to get every member of our church who has taken a vow to, to serve the worship and work of the church to the best of their ability we would like to get every family or every single in the church to sign up for one Sunday a year where you more visibly and actively participate in public worship. What does that mean? Well, I have the sheets up here if you want to see all the fine details that you'd be signing up for. But what it basically means is that you would come and help set up for both services. You would take up the offering in both services which is a sacred activity, and you would help greet beginning of the second service when we need extra greeters out there. But this, is, this would be for everybody, not just the men, not just the husbands, but for the kids, for the wives, for, for everybody to have a more visible and active presence of service in the most important activity that we do here on a weekly basis, which is worship. So we're, we're asking one Sunday a year, you can sign up. I recognize that people, families that have little uh, young children may not be able to do two services, and that's okay. We'll, we'll work with just one service. The other thing that I would love for you to consider doing, I know it's terrifying, but if you would be willing to help lead us in prayers for the church and the world, the reason that's important is because 
we're no professionals up here. <laughs> There's no such thing as a worship professional or a professional prayer leader. The prayers that we offer to God on Sunday are just the prayers of our people. And you don't have to be the most articulate or the, the, the best at praying to help us say something to the Lord that we can all say amen behind. There's no pressure. I'm not going to force anybody to do prayers for the church and the world. But if you were willing, and I'd be happy to help you craft the prayer. Shelton would be happy to help you craft the prayer. If you're willing on the one Sunday that you're already signed up for serving to lead prayers for the church and the world, and that, again, is a husband or a wife, or I think teenage kids would be perfect for it, (laughs) then um, we'd be grateful. You would... As as he says, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things, God would be praised. That's the spirit uh, behind this ministry initiative. Okay, let me conclude. One of the great illustrations on the second coming of Jesus Christ is found in an essay that was written by C.S. Lewis, which is entitled, The World's Last Night. Anybody read The World's Last Night? It's based on a famous line in the the poem, What if this present were the world's last night? The illustration that C.S. Lewis gives in this essay is of a woman who is in her apartment in the morning getting ready to, to go to work, I guess, during the day. She's getting dressed, and she uses this thing called a makeup mirror which is basically a high-powered telescope that's circular (laughs) for us guys. Uh, A makeup mirror with the lights on it so that she can see ever so clearly what she's doing with her rouge and her base and her, her eyebrows and the makeup mirror that enables her to look wonderful when she finally steps out into the greater light of the sun as it strikes her face. If all she does is put on her cosmetics, her makeup, under the dim fluorescent bulbs of her apartment, then disaster might end up happening, right? But Lewis says that's what it means to live a Christian life. We go out into the world every day dressed up and made up, not for the light of our bedrooms, but dressed and ready for the irresistible light that's going to break into this world at any moment. Let me say this to you. If you believe that Jesus Christ, that his face could appear at at any moment, which is the face of the world's judge, and it's also the face of your beloved, if at any moment he could make an appearance, if at any moment he could surprise you like a son coming home from war, coming through the front door of the house surprising his mom and dad, or a husband coming home to his wife and children, surprising them, by thinking that not only is that possible, but it very may well happen, and happen at any time, your eyes would behold his face. Your eyes would actually see death being swallowed up into victory and resurrection taking place all around you. And you would behold the very face of purity, unfading beauty, imperishable glory. If you know that is near, then you won't live in the darkness. Verses 1 through 6. 
you will no longer give yourself to the darkness and you will no longer be satisfied with the dim fluorescent light bulbs of this world. But you will dress yourself and you will make yourself ready for the occasion um, by living this new, new society and resurrection life. Amen.